What a joy it is to be here. This is my first time on the island of Guam, and I have been so warmly welcomed by you wonderful, wonderful folks here, not only at Harvest, but the, the multiple ministries as well. And so thank you for the warm welcome. This is the first time I've ever preached with a lay around my neck, and I felt like I couldn't take it off. I don't dare take it off because I feel like it represents your way of saying, I know it represents your way of saying welcome to Harvest and welcome to Guam and welcome to Micronesia. So we're very, very thankful for your hospitality, uh, your kindness, your gracious welcome, and all, all those things. If you have a copy of the scripture, I want to invite you to go with me this morning to Luke chapter 15. It's my joy this, this morning and through the week to focus on this wonderful theme that you have chosen for Missions Conference, that theme of untold millions. I, I don't know about you, but I remember singing that song uh, in Sunday school and children's ministry. Untold millions are still untold. Untold millions are outside the fold. And, and really, that's more than, than a, a kid's song. It's more than something for children's church or Sunday school. It really is a powerful theme in relationship to the need of the world for the gospel of Jesus Christ. And really, more than a kid's song, it's almost an indictment against us that some 2,000 years after the life and the death and the burial of Jesus Christ, that there are still untold millions, really there are untold billions of people that need Christ that have not yet heard the gospel. I think of it this way in, in connection with that, that, that untold billions of unbelievers remaining still untold is a clarion call to untold millions of believers to do everything possible to get the gospel to them. It's our charge, it's our call from God, if there are still untold billions, to do everything we can to take the gospel of Jesus Christ to them. And so over the course of the five messages I'll have the opportunity to preach in the church context, I want us to think about at least five different things that need to happen or five different ways that we as believers need to respond to this great need of billions of people who need Jesus Christ as their personal Savior. And so this morning, we're going to look at Luke chapter 15. Luke chapter 15 is all about the lost. As a matter of fact, if you were to go to verse 4, Jesus refers to a lost sheep. If you were to go to verse 9, Jesus refers to a lost coin. If you were to go to verse 24, Jesus refers to a lost son. It's a parable. A parable was an everyday life experience that Jesus would use to communicate everlasting truth, that really confront us with that everlasting truth. And so Christ is telling the, really these three parables that all have the same exact primary point about the importance of, of having a love for the lost. After all, how do you respond when you lose something? Do you ever lose something? Are any of you ever guilty of losing things? Unfortunately, that's a bad habit of mine. My wife, by the way, is a very organized person. She rarely loses anything. I, on the other hand, am not quite so organized, and I, on a regular basis, lose things. And sometimes that becomes a little bit of a point of contention in our marriage because I'm always losing things, and she's never losing things. And so I remember one time, especially when our girls were little, I remember losing something. I actually had taken the girls to the beach, and we had gone swimming, and I had placed the keys to our car in the pocket of my swimming trunks, and somewhere along the line while swimming, those keys got lost. 
And what I concluded was this. I concluded that they must be lost in the water. I had been on an inner tube. And so while I was floating in the inner tube, I thought, you know, they must have just fallen out of my pocket. And so they must be out there. And so the last thing I wanted to do was call my wife and tell her I'd lost the keys. You understand what I'm saying? That just doesn't go that well. So the best thing for me to do would be to find the keys. And so I went out there. And by the way, I was trained as a lifeguard in high school. And one of the things they teach you how to do in high school is how to find drowned people, bodies, okay? And one of the things they teach you how to do is to just go back and forth, like search and rescue type of thing, where if there's a body underneath the water, you actually just go back and forth like this. The best way to do it is actually to form a line, and then you step back, and you go back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. So can you just imagine a guy my size with two little girls on each hand, because they were there with me, and if we were going to find the keys, we were going to find the keys together. And so here I am out there in the water trying to find my keys, and we're doing this back and forth. And then I step back and go back and forth. I'm sure with my size 13s, eventually I'm going to find my keys. Eventually my foot's going to step on the keys and we're going to find them. And and not only imagine that, but imagine the people watching this happen. (laughs) Because they're watching me, they're looking at me, go back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. And they're like, what is that dude doing? You know, and they're like grabbing their children, you know, pulling the kids back. Some weird guy over there, we're not sure what's going on. Well, needless to say, I never found the keys. Somewhere, they're still buried in that lake in in Iowa, okay? Never found those keys. But I did everything I could to find those keys. And that's the point that Jesus is making here in relationship to not lost keys, but in relationship to lost souls, to lost people. Because as he tells these three parables, it's not about lost things, but it's about lost souls. It's about lost people. Notice how he describes them in the passage and notice the context. Beginning in verse 1 of Luke chapter 15. The Bible says this, Then all the tax collectors and the sinners drew near to him to hear him, and the Pharisees and scribes complained, saying, and here's why he's going to tell the story, okay? They complained, saying, This man receives sinners, and he eats with them, which would have in their culture communicated some concept of acceptance of them. Not only does he receive them, but he he eats with them. So he spoke this parable to them, saying, What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he loses one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the wilderness and go after the one which is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep which was lost. I say to you, likewise, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine just persons who need no repentance. And then the second parable, verse 8, or what woman having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp, sweep the house, search carefully until she finds it, and when she has found it, she calls her friends and neighbors together, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the peace which I lost. Likewise, I say to you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Folks, if we are going to take the gospel to the untold billions, that will only happen if believers like you and like me have a love for the lost. A love for the lost like Jesus has. You see, he was confronted by Pharisees who were all upset because he would spend time with sinners. How dare he do that? And so he tells these three stories as a way of making that point three times that Jesus loved sinners, and the reason he spent time with them was because of his love for them and his desire to save them. And so God wants each and every one of us to have that same kind of love 
for the lost. The way that we will take the gospel to untold billions is by loving the lost like the Lord does. And so notice with me this morning two different ways that we can demonstrate a love for the lost. I, I realize we would all say, well, I love lost people. It's, but it's one thing to say you love lost people. It's another thing to act like you love lost people. And this text points us toward two different ways that we can demonstrate a love for lost people. The first one is if you love lost people, you're, you will search. You will search for lost souls. If you love lost people, you will search for lost souls. Again, jump back into the text with me in verse 8 where it says this, Or what woman having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp, sweep the house, search carefully until she finds it. And so loving lost people means that you will do everything you can to try to find them. And, And the story that Jesus tells would have been a familiar one in that day. A lot of these parables were familiar in terms of personal experience. But it, it's significant for us to understand that there was a, there's a considerable difference in the story in relationship to even some of the cultural things that were going on there compared to our day. For instance, when we think of le- losing a coin, uh, do you think of that as losing very much money? If, if you were to lose a coin, would that be a big deal? I mean, if you lost a quarter, would it be a big deal? Probably wouldn't be a big deal. In their day and age, the, the coin that was being spoken of here was a Greek drachma that was a, equivalent to a day's wage for a Roman soldier. Someone has said that that would be the rough equivalent of $100. And so I would ask you today, if you lost $100, what would you do? You'd go find it, wouldn't you? You wouldn't be like, ah, what's 100 bucks to a guy like me, right? No big deal, 100 bucks, right? No, you'd be like, where did that go? I lost a $100 bill. I got to find this thing. And so it's no wonder that this lady searches for it, that she goes looking for it. As a matter of fact, the Bible says she lit a lamp, swept the house. Which, by the way, did you notice that this is a lady in the context? Because if it was a guy sweeping the house, it wouldn't have gotten done. He would never have found it, all right? Because you know how guys are. I don't know if, what it's like at your house, but if I sweep the house, I'm like, uh, done good, right? And my wife is like, oh, no, careful, you got to do it just right, you know, get out that Swiffer and all that kind of thing. This was a lady that was diligent and she was careful. She she lights a lamp, she sweeps the house, she searches carefully, the text says. The two words that I would associate with her search are that she searched diligently and desperately. Diligently and desperately. You, You understand, the more valuable something is, the harder you will search for it. The more valuable something is, the harder you will search for it. So I would ask you this morning, what's a human being worth? What's a, what's a soul worth? I mean, even just in, in terms of human life, what, what is a human being worth? I, I remember one time where I lost, of all things, I lost a deacon. I don't mean that he died, okay? I don't mean that he resigned. I mean, I lost a deacon, literally lost him. I went elk hunting with him in the mountains of Colorado, and uh, we lost him, Okay. <laughs> Literally, that's what happened. We were, we were hunting. We had this, this wonderful plan. We'd gotten up really, really early in the morning, and it was completely dark out, and we made our way up in, the, in four-wheel drive trucks in, up into the mountains on these Jeep trails where you just kind of scratch your way along in four, four-wheel drive, and you make your way up gradually. And For an hour and a half, we'd been traveling up this mountain. We finally got to a point where we got out of the truck, and we had this plan. I'm going to go up this mountainside and up this valley, and you're going to go up that mountainside. It's still dark in the, that valley, and we're going to rendezvous back at this point at whatever time we had set, and we're going to meet right back here, and then we're going to figure out what else to do, you know, whether or not we've gotten an elk, all that kind of stuff. And so that was the plan with my deacon and myself. And so we did that. I headed off one way, and he headed off another way, and I came back to the rendezvous point, and he was supposed to meet me there. Nothing. 
we had taken little like walkie-talkie radios with us that were supposed to have like a two-mile range, and I thought, by the way, that doesn't work very well with mountains. Um, even though they say they have two-mile range, the mountain kind of cuts it off. And so I got on the little walkie-talkie, and I started talking to him, or trying to talk and trying to commu- communicate, and nothing, nothing, nothing. And so after a little bit of time, I thought, well, maybe I ought to start going and looking for him. And so I kind of headed off the direction that I thought he would have headed, and, and time is, is click, clicking on, okay? <laughs> and, and the day starts to move on, and, 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 and finally I, I decided, you know, maybe I need to start yelling for him. And, th- you know, if you're a hunter, that's the worst thing to do because pretty much you announce to every wild critter in the entire region that a stupid human is here out here yelling, okay? And so every one of the elk, I'm sure, just moved over to the next mountain because of me yelling and finally started yelling. And then, and then we, I got back together with some of the other guys we were hunting with, and they're like, what are we going to do? Obviously, Bob is lost. And so finally, we went down the mountain, we went down into town, we went down in, and, and they have search and rescue. We finally said to them, because we realized that if they didn't get started with search and rescue, that the day was going to be over, and he was going to be on the mountain overnight, and that's the last thing you want when out in the mountains of Colorado is to, to end up spending the night on the mountain, cold temperatures and all the other things going on. And so finally, search and rescue was contacted, and they were about to dispatch when all of a sudden Bob shows up, not at the rendezvous point. He showed up like four miles down the mountain, back out at the highway. He had gotten turned around, and it's easy to do in the tall mountains. He'd gotten turned around and didn't know where that rendezvous point was. He could not figure it out. And so he thought, you know what? Water runs downhill. There's a river by where we came in. And eventually, if I just keep going downhill, eventually I'll get to that river. And that's what he did all day long. He walked all day long down the mountainside, all the way back down to the valley, and, and showed up, of all things, on the side of the highway. And they, they found him. Can you imagine, though, being me, thinking, how am I going to tell his wife? I mean, it's bad enough for me to tell my wife I lost my keys. How do you, how do you say to a deacon's wife, I lost your husband? Okay. <laughs> So you can imagine what was going on through my mind in terms of thinking about reaching him, finding him, searching for him, rescuing him. It's that same thing that Jesus is communicating here about this lady and her desperation, her diligence in, in trying to find her, co- her, her coin. And that's the mindset that God wants us to have in relationship to searching for a lost soul. Desperately. Diligently doing everything you can to to reach them for Christ and share the gospel of Christ with them. You see, a genuine love for lost people will be demonstrated by searching for those who need the Lord and seeking to bring them to Christ. My concern is this, that most Christians don't have that kind of mindset. Most Christians don't have the mindset of there are lost people that need Jesus. As a matter of fact, one of my ministry friends, he he, he, he serves in connection with an association of about 100 churches. And I was talking to him about that in, in connection with those churches. And he said as he goes out into these, this association of churches, one of the things he asks the churches is this. He says, when is the last time that you, that you as a church saw someone that was an adult saved and baptized? And you know what the most common answers are that he hears from those churches? The most common answers that he hears from them are, number one, I can't remember. In other words, I can't remember the last time an adult got saved and was baptized at our church. Or it's been a long, long time. What a terrible indictment that is on on the churches. Independent Baptist churches like like Harvest, that there would be that many, many years, that much time that they couldn't even remember the last time somebody got saved. 
And so what, what we're called to do is to have such a love for the lost that we would share the gospel with them. Sharing the gospel after all and making disciples after all is our mission. It's our mission. J.D. Greer has written a, a great book, and I won't take the time to explain some of the things he, he, he says there, but they're powerful things. But one of the things he says in that book is this, the church exists for mission. Without mission, a church is not a church, it's just a group of disobedient Christians hanging out. Without mission, a church is not a church, it's just a group of disobedient Christians hanging out. May God keep Harvest Baptist from being a bunch of Christians just hanging out, disobedient Christians hanging out. May God, even through this week, use the messages from his word to, to call us to love lost people and to reach them for Jesus Christ. That's what God has called us to do. And so are you someone who's searching for, seeking for, witnessing to, cultivating relationships with, giving tracks track to, whatever? Are you someone who's searching for lost people? That is both, by the way, a local proposition as well as a global proposition. That God would want you to do that right here, but also that God would want you to do that around the world. But you realize that God won't call you across the planet if you're not reaching someone across the street. And so it's vital for us to understand the need for us to be searching for lost souls. If you have a real love for lost people, you will search, you will search for lost souls. Secondly, if you have a real love for lost people, you will rejoice about lost souls. You will rejoice. Look at what the text says. Actually, it says it in verse 7 in the first parable, as well as in verse 9. Verse 7 puts it this way. I say to you that likewise there will be joy, more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 just persons who need no repentance. And then in verse 9 we see it again. Rejoice with me, for I have found the peace which I lost. Likewise, I say to you, verse 10, I say to you there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Think about that. Joy in the presence of angels. I mean, the lady is described here in terms of the coin. She practically throws a party. I mean, she tells her neighbors, I found my coin. Which, by the way, theologians say that this coin may not have just been worth about 100 bucks. It may have actually been a part of her wedding headdress. They would actually insert coins into a traditional Jewish wedding headdress. So it might have been that precious to her. And so it's no wonder. She throws a party. She tells her neighbors, I found my coin. And that's true in the earlier portion. It's also true in the third parable that in each one of them there's joy. But specifically it says this. It says that there's joy in the presence of angels. There's joy in heaven over one sinner who repents. Do, do you wonder what that looks like? I mean, what it's like in heaven when one person gets saved? I mean, I, I know. It, 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 we, it's hard for us because we're so earthbound in our minds. It's hard for us to imagine heaven. Um, but I like my, to let my sanctified imagination go a little bit on that. Uh, if there's joy and there's like this celebration, I mean, overwhelming joy over one sinner repents in heaven, what does that look like? You know, are, are, are the angels like flitting back and forth across heaven, you know, and, and high-fiving with wings? Is that what's going on? You know, are they singing the hallelujah chorus or something like that? I don't know what exactly that looks like, but I know the Bible says that there's joy in the presence of angels in heaven. I don't think they go, amen. <laughs> Praise the Lord. I hope they really meant it. <laughs> like some Baptists respond. 
There's joy in the presence of angels. Thrill, celebration over one person that gets saved. What an amazing thing that must be. I mean, think about it. I mean, we understand this on a, on a human level. For instance, when a baby's born, I mean, God, God has blessed us with four kids, and every single one of their births was special, amazing, incredible, overwhelming. But I have to admit, the first one was especially that way, okay? Because it was our first baby being born. The circumstances were a little bit unique, too, in that my wife was in labor for 16 hours. As a matter of fact, she didn't tell me she was in labor, all right, because she had been having false labor for a number of nights, and so we went to bed that night, and she didn't tell me she was in labor, but all of a sudden, in the middle of the night, I woke up sick, which is kind of strange. She's having a baby, and I'm sick. Well, what happened was this. We had a waterbed, and I know for anybody under 40, you're like, what's a waterbed, right? <laughs> have, some, have some old person tell you the rest of the story on what a waterbed is, Okay. So what had been happening was all night long, every time my wife had labor pain, she would rock back and forth in the bed, and I would ride the waves. And, and, and I didn't know what was going on. I was asleep. But I woke up, literally, I woke up in the middle of the night, I crawled out of bed, I'm like, oh, I don't know what's wrong with me. And she's like, oh, I'm having a baby, you know. So that was a little bit of how we got started on having the baby. Then we ended up going to the hospital and complications, you know, and they start saying things like C-section and forceps and all kinds of stuff like that. And you're like, what? And this is our first child. So finally, though, after all these hours, and I make it sound like it was hard on me, right? <laughs> finally, after all these hours, finally, I'm holding little Ellen Marie, named after my grandmother. I'm holding little Ellen Marie in my, in my hands, and I'm bawling my eyes out. I'm just bawling my eyes out. I've got a baby. She doesn't look like me. Hallelujah. Right? <laughs> I've got a baby. And I remember taking her and, and, and putting her on my, on my wife's chest. And, and for the very first time, we had a baby. There's, apart from my salvation and, and us getting married, I don't know there's been a more joyous, more joyous occasion in our life than the birth of a baby. That's what's being described here in terms of a, the, the rebirth of a soul. The rebirth of someone who trusts Christ as their Savior. That kind of joy in the presence of angels. It ought to thrill our hearts when we hear about somebody getting saved. Really, that's a thermometer to your spiritual temperature. If somebody can say to you that so-and-so trusted Christ as their Savior, you're like, oh, that's nice. What does that say? What does that say about your spiritual temperature? Just last Wednesday night at our church, I, the previous Saturday, we'd been out making uh, evangelistic calls, visiting and we'd been in one specific neighborhood where we were following up on, on a ministry of our church and trying to share the gospel and stood at the door with a team of folks and hoping to share the gospel with this lady. She said, no, I'm, I'm too busy, and so come back Wednesday. And so I didn't get the opportunity because of prayer meeting to go on Wednesday night, but our evangelistic team went out. And so they came back then after church on Wednesday night, and they, they shared with me about this lady whose door I'd stood at on, sun, on Saturday and said she was too busy, that she trusted Christ as her Savior on Wednesday night. What a thrill that was. And that ought to be the case for all of us. When, when we hear of somebody trusting the Lord as our Savior, it shouldn't be amen or hope they meant it or whatever kind of thing. It ought, to, it ought to thrill our hearts. That's a thermometer of our spiritual temperature. And you know what? It's all the more thrilling when you get to be the one who leads somebody to Christ. That God would allow you that opportunity to lead somebody to Christ. James Montgomery Boyce puts it pretty boldly when he says this about that. He says, Quote, we are never so like God as when we rejoice in the salvation of sinners. 
We are never so like Satan as when we despise those who thus converted and think ourselves superior to them. What a significant difference between the two attitudes. My fear is that many Christians are more like the Pharisees and scribes than they are like the Lord. They're more prone to complain about the sins of lost people than they are to try to reach those same lost people for Christ. Do you find yourself doing that? Man, this world, it's so horrible. All these people doing all these dumb things. and What a wicked world we live in. Instead of saying, they need Jesus. They need the gospel. That's the only thing that's going to change the world is not us complaining about it, but us taking the gospel to them. That's our job, and that's our joy as well. If you love lost people, you will rejoice over them coming to know Christ. I want to close this morning with kind of my testimony of somebody reaching our family for Christ. I remember preaching at a conference one time, and every other preacher told about how he was a third or fourth generation Christian, in some cases seventh generation and, and I remember speaking and saying, you know what, that's not my testimony. God just reached down and saved us and, and, and my family. So my testimony is really interwoven with my family's testimony, my parents' testimony. Because my mom and my dad weren't believers. As a matter of fact, my mom and dad got married at, at age 19 and 17 because my mom was pregnant with my older sister. A couple teenagers in the 60s um, doing the wrong thing, okay. But they got married, thank the Lord. I'm, I'm grateful for that. But not, not saved. And so... It was when I was then nine years old. I came along later. Uh, my, my older sister was born when my mom was 17. I was born when my mom was 19. And, and, and uh, uh, it wasn't until I was nine years old that God started doing a work of a search and rescue mission uh, into the heart and lives of the Odal family. Uh, by that time that I was nine, I had another little sister. And so my mom was in her late 20s, and she had three little kids, and just kind of overwhelmed by life, uh, overwhelmed by being a wife and a mother and all those things, and, and of all things, what happened was a lady that was barely an acquaintance of hers invited her to attend a Bible study, to be a part of a Bible study. And it was as a result of that lady uh, inviting her to a Bible study that my mom trusted Christ as her Savior. That one lady, I, I don't even know this lady's name, honestly. Don't know her name, but that one lady was on a search and rescue mission, loving lost souls, trying to reach somebody for Jesus, invited my mom to Bible study, and she trusted Christ as her Savior. It was within months of that that I became a Christian. My mom, of course, the second she got saved, what she want to do? She wants to see her husband and her kids all get saved, to trust the Lord as her Savior. So as a result of that, as a nine-year-old, she took me to a, a crusade, much like a Billy Graham type of crusade, and I heard the gospel, and I trusted Christ as my Savior. Eventually, my sisters would do the same thing. My dad, on the other hand, was a holdout. My dad had been raised in a, in a home where they were really antagonistic to the gospel, especially his father, uh, didn't want anything to do with God, didn't want anything to do with religion, didn't want anything to do with church. And so that was kind of the, the attitude that my dad even had a bit. As a matter of fact, we lived across the gravel road in the rural Nebraska from a church uh, that my mom was going to, and my dad would intentionally mow the lawn on Sunday morning during the morning church service as a way to just kind of be a, a jerk. <laughs> but it, it, was through, it was through the pastor of that church uh, loving my dad that my dad trusted Christ. My dad is a big hunter, as I've implied by my, my statements about hunting, and this pastor found out that my dad liked to hunt, and they would go hunting together. And so finally when I was 14, my dad trusted Christ as his Savior. And how thankful I am today for that one lady that just said to my mom, would you, have a, would you join our Bible study? I would not be here today, humanly speaking, had it not been for that one lady that just invited my mom to do a Bible study. 
that loved the lost soul enough to do that. And that's exactly how God works. And so my challenge for you and for all of us is if we're going to take the gospel to untold billions, the only way we can do that is if we have the same kind of love for lost souls that Jesus had. Love enough to go searching for them and love enough to rejoice over one sinner getting saved. What does God want you to do? What does God want you to do to love lost souls like Jesus does? I'm excited. Next Sunday night, you're going to start an evangelistic training. That would be a wonderful way for you to begin to prepare for God to use you. Maybe you need to think in terms of Bible study. Maybe right now, one of the things we do at our church is we do what's called Find Five, where we encourage our church family to always have five people you're praying for for their salvation and write down the names of the individuals that need Christ. Maybe, that, maybe you need to start a Find Five list. Maybe you need to do something else. But what does, God want to, what does God want to do in your heart, in your life, to give you the same love for souls that Jesus has?